0: Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. I can't wait. You ever said that? I mean, some of us say it while we're like jumping up and down, clapping, very expressive. Others of us, maybe a little more understated, you know? I can't wait, yeah. Some of us are too cool for school, hands in our pocket, I'll probably be there. (laughs) I can't wait. We've all said it for something or some experience. Take a moment, talk to the person next to you. What can't you wait for right now? And are you more of the, I'm going to jump up and down, clap my hands, I can't wait, a little more understated, or are you the too cool for school? Take a moment, just talk with each other. What can't you wait for right now? And how do you typically express that? All right, I'm going to break up your conversation. You can uh, reconnect at the 30-minute party and finish that off. Um, However we say it, however we express it, it's an appealing thing, right? It's a sentiment that expresses some kind of hope, some kind of expectation, some kind of anticipation for something in the future. Um, But it would be weird, actually, to say that at, like, an anniversary, right? You're celebrating some kind of an annual event in someone's life and you maybe bring a card, let's say, and happy anniversary. I can't wait, that would be weird. Like if you're eating the cake, this cake is really good. I can't wait, it'd be strange to say at an anniversary. Uh, It would probably be also weird to say it at a memorial event, some kind of a gathering that happens on an annual or semi-annual every 10 years where uh, uh, remembering some kind of an event or someone, or someone's contribution, it would be weird to go and read on the monument, we can't wait. Uh, it would be weird if you, as you're listening to speeches, commemorating the day, or commemorating the event, or commemorating the person, to lean over someone next to you and say, I can't wait, right? They'd be like, what do you mean you can't wait? To remember? Like, we're doing that right now. You, you can't wait till you go home and forget about this, and then come back next year and remember? Like, it'd be strange to say. It would also be strange to say it on Easter Sunday, right? Like, just turn to the person next to you for a moment and say, Happy Easter, I can't wait. Just do that for a second. Happy Easter, I can't wait. That, that feels weird, right? But in many ways, we can actually see or experience or think about Easter Sunday, a day like today, like an anniversary, Like every year, it's sort of a a special event. Maybe your spouse or your mom or your grandmother's voice in your ear made you, you know, wear some nicer threads today. Maybe collared, maybe you ironed, maybe you had a shower or something. It's like, it's Easter Sunday. Maybe you're celebrating with family today or friends. They're going to, you're going to cook a nice meal. It's a different day. And it's kind of like, yeah, on someone's anniversary or birthday, it's like, hey, they're king for a day. And it's like, yeah, Jesus is king for a day. It's all about him. This is Easter Sunday it can feel like that kind of a, a, an anniversary event. And then we go home and we go back to life or back to Monday and back to school, and back to work, and maybe you'll come back to church next week or maybe you'll come back next year because that's kind of what you do every year on the anniversary. Sometimes we can see uh, Easter Sunday like a memorial, certainly maybe Good Friday where we remember the events of the death. And today the, we remember the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. We remember him. We look back in the past and we remember how his life and those events have effect, has affected our lives in, in positive ways. And so it can feel like a memorial, a remembrance, and then we move on. But I would suggest to you that I can't wait is not only the most appropriate thing that you could say on Easter Sunday, it is the most powerful and the most true statement that you could say on Easter Sunday. Because... Easter Sunday is not actually like an anniversary. Easter Sunday is not actually like a memorial. It's more like, well, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. You have to wait. But here's what I promise. I promise you, and and actually this is what I prayed for. Maybe I can say it. I prayed. I don't know, promise. But I I prayed that by the end of this message, you would leave here feeling not only like, yeah, I can't wait is a really appropriate thing to say on Easter Sunday, but I also have prayed that you would feel it inside you. Whether you're the happy clappy, I can't wait, a little more understated or too cool for school hands in your pocket. But that every one of you, deep down, underneath, or to a friend, or out loud, you would be able to say and feel with joy and anticipation and hope, I can't wait. Now, for part of this exploration to get to underneath why this is so an, such an appropriate thing to, to say, we have to go back to little history, uh, to the first Easter Sunday. The first Easter Sunday, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but the first Easter Sunday began when a few of Jesus' friends and eventually several hundred people saw him in the flesh, walking, talking, praying, eating, hanging out with them after they had seen him get killed, crucified, killed, and buried. Several people and then several more, hundreds more, saw him in person, eating, walking, talking in the flesh after they had seen him die. It was Resurrection Day. And that began to change everything for them. In fact, within a few years, um, they began to call every Sunday Resurrection Day. It wasn't just that one day, the, the three days after Jesus had been crucified on Good Friday and then rose from the dead, but then every Sunday, every week, they celebrated Resurrection Day. Sunday was Resurrection Day. The reason they did it was, was yes, they're, they're, the one that they had become to believe was the Messiah, was their leader, was their king, was going to deliver them from Rome, whatever, and then had been crucified by the Romans and by his religious enemies was now raised from the dead. And so their hope was back for what Jesus would be as their king and their leader. And yes, it's true that they had lost, when he died, uh, a friend. um, Someone who cared about them. Someone who loved them. Someone who, when they were with him, they felt safe and alive on the inside. And they got him back. And so, yes, his resurrection meant that uh, the things they had hoped for, they could hope again. It meant that what they had grieved, they got back. It meant that what they thought they had lost, they had found again. Yes, but they celebrated not just that day, but every Sunday after that as a resurrection day, because for them, it meant a new day. It meant that things were going to start to change. The resurrection of Jesus for them became the greatest turning point in history, the greatest plot twist in the story it wasn't so much or only about oh what we'd hoped for in the past it's good it's now this changes everything this changes our lives this changes our story therefore every sunday is resurrection day and to understand why understand why that this this turned the the course of history was the great inflection point in the story was the great plot twist in their story that began to change not just how they saw the past but how they saw their present lives and the future we actually are going to read today from a passage that on one level we look at and think i don't know what this has to do with easter sunday it's not a passage i think we read very often on easter sunday it's actually (laughs) jumps from the jesus story to the end of the story it's the second last chapter in the entire bible after over a thousand chapters it jumps to the end of the story to give us a glimpse of where is this whole plot going how does this all play out how does this actually finish to give us a sense of hope and to help us understand why these first disciples at the resurrection of Jesus, why Easter Sunday was the turning point in the whole story and began to change how they saw every day after that. And so let's listen as this is read for us.
1: Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city Has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, "I am making everything new." Then he said, "Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true."
0: At first glance, we might be wondering, what does this have to do with Easter? Um, it occurs, like I said, right at the end of the story, and it's a vision or a picture of where things are heading, or the final resolution or the wrap-up to the story. In that sense, it, is a, um, it, it gives us a sense of how to make sense of the resurrection and what it actually meant. Because if you just step back and say, what is this passage describing? It, it's actually talking about the end of one thing or like it uses the words, the old order of things. Like Revelation, this last thing says that at the end, there will be an end of the old order of things. And not a great collapse and it all just gets absorbed in the supreme consciousness or burned up and that's it and it all just fades to black. It's like, no, it's the end of one thing, the end of an old way of doing or the old order of things and the beginning of a new order. The beginning of a new world. And this is why this has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus, because the resurrection of Jesus for his disciples and the writers that started to come afterwards was the signal that the old way things worked was coming to an end and something new was beginning. The resurrection of Jesus was the starting point or the indication, because literally in his body... When he was raised from the dead, his body was different and he had been completely killed. And he said, he promised, I will raise myself from the dead. He was the first sign, the visible symbol of what this passage talks about in Revelation, that the old order of things, everybody dies. (laughs) The old order of things is gone and a new way of living and a new world is coming. And Jesus was the beginning, the signal that this was starting to happen in that sense, it helps us understand that Easter Sunday, the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, is not like an anniversary day. It's not like a memorial day. It's more like a tasting. A tasting. Like if you know a couple that has gotten married recently or is going to get married, or perhaps you did get married recently or you're going to get married recently, you know one of the things that you do is you go to the venue where your wedding party, uh, like the the reception is going to be, for a tasting. And you go and you actually taste the food that's going to be served to you and to everyone on your wedding day. You go, and and it's not just a tasting, you go and you see the venue, and you see the chair covers that are going to go, and how this room is going to be transformed into the room of your dreams, and where the DJ is going to be, and you get to see where you're going to enter, and you're going to see where the dance floor is, and you're going to get to see what the, what the lights are going to be like. You might see pictures of other people's weddings, or a little sample of one chair that'll be dressed like this with such and such a bow, or one centerpiece that'll look like this. It's a tasting, it's an experience, and it's not just a tasting tasting of the food. It's like an imagining of what that day will be like. The tasting is done in advance of the big day. It's not the big day. It's not the big day itself, but you're only going with you. And in fact, like they're showing you what's going to happen on that day. It's well ahead of the actual day. And even more so, hopefully the couple is tasting um, or imagining what will the, like what they're tasting and savoring is their love. Like this is a day where we, two people, finally become one and we will now live in that love and that life for the rest of our lives. It's not just anticipating that day. It's that day is a doorway or a gateway or uh, um, uh, an entrance into Every day after that day. Yes, the wedding day, and then every day after, lifelong love. That's what the couple pledges in their vows. That's what they hope for. That's why they're having the celebration. Everybody's in the room that is meaningful to them and a family and who's been a part of their journey, and it's an anticipation or a taste of what's to come. They can taste it. They can see it. They can imagine it. And what are they going to do, probably, when that couple leaves that venue and they're excited and they're holding hands and they're swinging their arms What are they gonna say when they look at each other? I can't wait, right? That's what they're gonna say. That's totally what they would say because they just tasted a little bit. It wasn't the day itself. It wasn't the marriage day when they pledged. They're still engaged. They still have to, you know, it's like say goodbye to each other at the end of the night. They still have to. Maybe I've I've um, have done weddings for couples that have been long distance in their engagement. They still have to do phone calls or Zoom calls or say goodbye and not see each other. They're anticipating their union, their forever day that this wedding day is going to be. They walk out hand in hand and they say, "I can't wait." The tasting made them long for the day itself, right? They can taste it, the food, and they can picture it. Friends, that's why Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, is a tasting. It is a tasting of what is to come. And so I want to camp out on this image because what we need to do with Revelation is anticipate, taste, think about what is going to be our forever state. Where is the end of the story going that describes that day and every day after? And what we see in this passage in Revelation, and again, it's, it's a vision, it's a trippy dream that someone saw and then tried to write down that they got from God. And so there's, it's rich with imagery, but it has like personal, communal, and global dimensions to it, all the way through it. Um, it, it's, it actually is describing relationships at a personal community and global level of love and beauty and joy and peace and unity. It, it first is like very personal. It's a new life for me personally. It actually describes it as a wedding day. It puts love at the center of where our story is going. It's like this, and the the bride, bridegroom is this very personal sense of being loved and receiving the love of God and living in that state, that union of love forever. When it says at, at the end that God will wipe away every tear from their eye, I can't think of a more beautiful description of how personal the love of God would be, right? Wiping away every tear. That's not just, oh, there'll be no more pain. Wiping away every tear is an individual thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that parents do with children or lovers do with one another to calm them and comfort them and say, it's going to be okay. There's this personal dimension of, of love <clears throat> and that the things that have marked our lives, perhaps as individuals, whatever our stories have been, whether it's pain or death or sorrow or tears or loss or grief or hurt, that all of that will be gone. It's a very personal experience that we're meant to anticipate and look forward to. But it also describes a new life for us as a community. It says not just the bride-bridegroom thing. It says, I saw a new city, a holy city. And we're not meant to think like um, buildings and land. Um, The new Jerusalem, the holy city, was describing a community. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, it describes people, in who followers of Jesus, collectively as living stones all built together in a house, the house of God. It describes a community. It says God will be with them, will dwell with them. And there's this sense of like in a city, a city is not like a bunch of couches where everyone's sitting around drinking, you know, coconut milk out of coconuts and someone's waving palm bread. I know some of us would like love that or whatever, but you can't do that forever. Um, the city actually describes, a city is bustling with life and industry, art, music, creativity, people. There's a, there's a you know, kind of a multi-dimensional aspect. to life. It includes work, like good work, like uh, excitement and, and industry. Like a city describes a teeming, rich, deep, communal life. And it says this is what's going to happen too without any of the things that normally hurt cities, right? Crime and greed and selfishness and, and, and destruction and decay and even buildings falling apart or new things getting old or getting rusty or getting pills on them or getting obsolete. None of that is present in this new community. And then at a global level, it describes a new world. A new world for everyone. It's so interesting. One of the commentators said the best way to translate this is when God says, I will be your God and you will be my, it's actually plural, peoples. It's implying something that Revelation already talked about, that the new world will be um, uh, a multi-ethnic, multilingual, incredibly diverse, but united community and world without war, without racism, without sexism, without ageism <laughs> right without all of the isms and schisms that fragment tribes and countries in our world that there will be a united community of people so there's this is describing this like um incredible uh, new world a new a new me <laughs> me personally a new us a new community and a new world for everyone to which you might go well that sounds great <laughs> is it true Like, how do we know this isn't just wishful thinking? That would be nice. Maybe, maybe not. Well, Revelation actually tells us who is giving this vision. Look what it says. The one who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said to John, who's writing this letter, write this down because all of this is trustworthy and true. The one on the throne says, I am doing this. I am making everything new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy. You can count on them. They're true. It's real. Who's the one on the throne? Well, actually, if you look all the way through Revelation, we're seeing it over and over and over again. It says the one seated on the throne is the slain lamb, (laughs) which is a reference to the crucified and risen Jesus. It is Jesus himself who says, I'm going to do this. And when you see it at the end, it's like, I've made everything new for you, for each other, for the world. You can count on it. It's true. How do we know this is true? Because Easter itself looks back to when this same Jesus was made entirely new. When he said, destroy me and I will raise myself again to life, right? That's what he said to his enemies. If you destroy me, I'll, I'll be raised to life. It looks back to his whole life where, think about this, not just the the resurrection of Jesus, not just the death of Jesus, but the whole life of Jesus, we actually see tastes of what Revelation describes all the way through the life of Jesus, right? Revelation says there will be this place when God is always with us and we are always with God. Well, what was the name given to Jesus when he came first into our world? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Revelation says in the end, there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. (laughs) There will be unity. (laughs) What do we see in the life of Jesus? him wiping away tears, him taking away sickness, him casting out demons, setting people free, him raising the dead, him turning people's mourning into joy, parents who thought they had lost their child being uh, laughing again because their mourning was no more. We see Jesus uniting people around him from different races, uniting uh, genders, working across all of the barriers, the things that separate people we see in the community of Jesus not forever, but for certain people at certain times at a certain place in history. We see the taste through the life of Jesus of what Revelation describes will eventually be for everyone, for all peoples in a permanent state. The resurrection is the guarantee, the proof, the authentication that one day the old order of things will pass away and the new world will come because we saw it in Jesus in glimpses and tastes and his resurrection, what happened to him will happen to every one of us individually, communally, and, and globally, cosmically for the whole world. It happened in Jesus for some people at a certain point in time, for a certain period of time. But then it continues on in the church. And the church also continues to experience this as a taste. The church prays for people and people are healed. Not all the time but it happens. The church gathers together. We wipe away each other's tears. That's what we do. when We care and we comfort each other. The church is this place of a multi-ethnic, multilingual community coming together and experiencing unity despite the differences. The church is this place where we work against the barriers and walls that divide people. The church is this place where you get to experience the dwelling of God. When it says God will dwell with them, he will be their God, they will be his people. The church, we get to experience together what the presence of God feels like. All the time? Permanently? No. It's incomplete. We pray, and sometimes people are healed. We wipe away tears, but they come back. We, at times, are a very unified community. Other times we're divided. At times we feel the presence of God, like he's right here with us. And other times he feels miles and miles away. It's not finished yet. It's just a taste. And what's so interesting about this picture in Revelation, it describes some things that will be there and some things that won't be there. Right? Like it's describing this thing that's so great in terms of what will be there but also in what things it's going to be great because these other things won't be there. Like we'll get to be in the presence of God and we'll experience peace and love like a bride and bride room city, like a bustling, creative, dynamic, industrious life together. But that's what will be there. But what won't be there is pain, sadness, tears, death, and mourning. And here's why this is so important. Because it means that I can't wait is a song and words and prayers that we can say to each other and say to God in every season, right? When we're experiencing a taste of what will be there, like like I can feel the presence of God sometimes when we worship together or I'm praying with another person. When we experience the love of God being poured into our hearts or the love that's in a community. When we experience the sense of fulfillment in our life's work. When we experience the sense of unity and working with other people, we can say, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait um, for for this to happen over and over and over again. I can't wait for this little taste to become fullness, right? To happen all the time, right? A wedding couple, they only get it for that day. The rest of their life's not going to be, you know, hundreds of people there to celebrate them and hanging out and having people serve food and sitting on these nice chairs. It's only one day, right? But we get to say, yeah, it's a taste now, but one day it will be every day when we're experiencing the things that will be there. But we can also say, I can't wait for what won't be there anymore. I can't wait until this is over. When we're experiencing suffering, pain, loss, tears, mourning, and death, we can also say, I can't wait till this is over. Which means we can always say and sing this. I can't wait can be our song with each other. When we're mourning together, we can say to each other, I can't wait till your suffering is over. I can't wait till God comes to heal that. I can't wait till you get to see your friend, your loved one, your spouse, your parent, your child in the new creation again. I can't wait for you to experience healing and forgiveness and and health in your body. I can't wait. We can say that to each other as we mourn. And we can say when we experience a glimpse, a taste, oh, that was so good. I can't wait till that day is every day. It's a song we can sing. And so if that's true, if that's true words that the resurrection of Jesus says is a taste, is coming, that every time we experience that as the body of Christ in some way, it's a taste, then I would say, while you wait, right, go to as many tastings as you can. Go to as many tastings as you can, right? Be in as many gatherings with other people who also can't wait to experience the presence of God, to experience the love of God, like a, like a bride and a bridegroom, that sense of acceptance and love and vulnerability and joy. Go to as many gatherings as you can where you can pray together, where you can even mourn and carry each other's griefs. This is why it's okay to go and say, okay, I, even though I, I wish there was no pain or loss or mourning or death, we can go together into those hard places because we can say, one day I can't wait till this is gone. I can't wait till this is over. Go to as many tastings as you can to experience what it will one day be like in full. Because it's not the wedding day yet. It's not that day and every day yet. It's just a taste. And so that may be just coming back next week. (laughs) Don't wait another year to come back to church, to come back next week. It may be being involved in a home group or prayer, just hanging out together, praying for each other through our hard times, comforting each other. It's all a taste where we say together, I can't wait till this is every day. I can't wait till this is no more. See, friends, when we are able to do that together, every time we get a taste, it gives us a hunger for more, and it gives us a hope (laughs) to hold on until the day that what we can't wait for is finally